dear podcast friends, welcome to Insights and Beyond, Digitalization, Sustainability and Technology. The podcast by Trelleborg Ceiling Solutions. You're in the right place if you're interested in the driving questions around topics like digitalization, electrification and sustainability. And above all, if you want to participate in a discussion with your exciting questions and comments. Experience the talks with our experts from Trelleborg and specialists from business, industry and research. So have fun with a new episode of Insights and Beyond. How good are we actually at digitalization? There's often kind of a perceived truth to this. Some pessimists rate us worse than we are. Others look to our development with a naivety somehow. The facts are that USA dominates the field of major patents in the sector of digitalization with a percentage about 50%. Asia accounts for 30% and Europe for just 10%. Does this fact make Germany a digital developing country? That's what I'm talking about today with Niklas Kühl, Head of Applied AI Lab at the Karlsruher Institute of Technology and Johannes Kunze von Bischofshausen, Manager Digital Transformation at Trelleborg Ceiling Solutions. Hi, guys. Hey. <laughs> Hello. So first question and um, first task for you. If someone were to give a book title about your impact on digitalization, what would be the title of the book? Yeah, so I mean, my title would be probably artificial intelligence in systems or in service systems, because what I find most fascinating um, about the whole topic of digitalization and the introduction of artificial intelligence is the idea that you can generate a lot of value if you learn not only in isolated cases within single businesses, but do this holistically in, in whole um, supply chain systems, for example, um, or in a cooperating model between different companies that generate value together. So I think that's, for me, one of the most interesting aspects is how can we leverage these effects that you have if you bring together data or machine learning models from different companies um, from different uh, institutions and then see what you can do and how all of these participants in such a system then would benefit from that again. That sounds that like that's not just an idea. It <laughs> sounds like you're already writing the book. <laughs> Almost, yeah. No, I mean, I, in general, this is, this is what, what I'm researching on uh, within the lab. So, uh, of course, this is my day-to-day -day business. Um, but I still believe in, 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 in this idea to be very valuable. Yeah. But can we read a book like that soon? <laughs> well, you can. I mean, in there, there's one book coming out actually in, in December, which is called Smart Service Management, uh, which has a focus on the service aspect um, of, of the whole idea. But uh, of course, I'm also working on, on additional publications in this area. So, um, Johannes, what is about you? Is, it, is there still a, a white paper in front of you or, or are you already uh, writing a book as well? Well, Since the, the first title we discussed already in our previous podcast, um, there is a second part of it, and that's um, scaling up the digital transformation from pilots to mass uh, applications. So that means um, the question is, how do we bring our isolated pilots into reality? How do we use them in a day-to-day -day practice? Is that a book you're actually working on, or is it just an idea? We are uh, working on that in Trellabox Ceiling Solutions in Uh, implementing our pilots into uh, in, into uh, the real uh, world, into the factories, into our day-to-day -day sales business. Um, but the book to be written, that's uh, still a part uh, 
that's uh, still a task. Uh, uh, the book still has to be written. So it's uh, the upcoming season is the cold season. So I think you have enough time to write it right now. The winter <laughs> is a good time for it. Definitely. <laughs> But it's it's very good to to see and to hear that there are some um, helpful things for the people that enable them to do the digital transformation. Because we're talking a lot about um, we're talking a lot of these big pictures. But the enabling of the people is one of the most important things, in my opinion, to really uh, yeah to get the things done and. Another thing what I'm interested in is we're talking a lot about digitalization. Niklas, what question would you like to be asked? Because you think it addresses a very important fact or a very important field, but at the same time, it's a very unnoticed problem. Yeah, I think when you look into the whole area of outsourcing core competencies, this is a field that is discussed very negatively While on the other hand, we can quite get a lot of benefits if you look at companies which specialize in one very precise thing and do this thing very well and have scaling effects by doing so and learn more about all the different participants using that very service or idea. So what I am missing a little bit is uh, discussions about all the positive effects of um, and I don't really like the term, but of, of outsourcing certain parts of your business to someone who might uh, be actually doing a better job in that and then concentrating on something else that you might do better. Mm -hmm. What is it for you? It's definitely how uh, do we want to do change management uh, in the age of AI? So um, as we discussed We see a lot of pilots, and that's um, that's what we also see in Trillabox Ceiling Solutions, but that's a general challenge in all companies. is um, There might be a lot of different, uh, very interesting pilots in, in the AI space, but then the question is, and, and you might get some, some, some valuable insights already, but then the question is, how do you scale this up? How do you make people, uh, salespeople, how do you make uh, the shop floor in manufacturing um, uh, use these models? How do you uh, make sure that, that people actually adopt it and that it will not just be a, a nice uh, research project in, inside the organization? <laughs> Something you can write on your website. We use AI, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> um, we had the pleasure to um, join the virtual conference of Trelleborg Ceiling Solutions in July. And therefore, we um, ask our audience to ask their question that we can discuss the topics. And there are still so many questions left. And I think we have to, um, yeah, we also had to look for some questions we can uh, answer today. So we start with our first question. The first question is... Um, European data protection regulations have been criticized for sh uh, slowing down developments in the field of digitalization and AI. Do you think these criticisms are justified? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think we have to look at GDPR from a different perspective, because at least for Germany, um, these similar laws were already in place since uh, even before 2018. Um, just the way of how companies need to document uh, their processes and how the um, consequences are enforced um, are different since May of 2018. 
But I personally think um, that there is a way in between um, for still accounting for privacy and the GDPR regulations, while on the other hand still providing um, beneficial and high-performing um, artificial intelligence solutions. Um, I, I'd like to give a very simple example from one of the projects that I'm currently working on. Um, And it shows, in my perspective, how technology can overcome certain issues that you think might occur when working with um, private data. So, uh, as you all know, uh, in the current corona pandemic, um, there are a lot of different uh, non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions called NPIs. So, these are measures so that the virus doesn't spread as fast. And one of these NPIs that was introduced across a lot of countries all over the world is the NPI of mask wearing. So, people wearing masks in public, wearing masks in restaurants and so on. Um, but if you look at how you could monitor this mask wearing, you can't place people in front of every store and every restaurant and every public place. So you need some kind of technology to help you with that. So what we developed is um, a type of surveillance system that helps you to identify and monitor what the percentage of people wearing masks is in the current situation. And now there are two ways to approach it. The one is uh, you simply work on on the data showing all the faces, which might reveal personal information, right? So I could know that Sarah or Johannes were in a certain store at a certain time. Um, and then you would get a very high um, artificial intelligence performance. Uh, the recognition grade would be very, very high also on the one hand of the mask, but on the other hand also on the personal data. Now, our approach was a little bit different because what we thought we need a step before that, which will blur the images um, so that you cannot recognize a single person anymore. But on the other hand, you're still able to recognize whether or not they were wearing a mask. And by doing that, technology helps us to overcome issues in, in the privacy field. And um, what's interesting is the trade-off here between privacy preservation on the one hand and the AI performance on the other hand. But what we found out, which is, I think, pretty interesting, is that we can still allow for a high AI performance, although we um, keep the information private and secured. So our, uh, speaking in technical terms, our accuracy goes down a little bit of the detection of masks, but we still preserve the privacy of the people on the images um, And in the end, we still get very good results. And so I think it's, it's, it's an interesting field to work in and to see how technology can help to assure both high performing, um, performance on the one hand and on the other hand, still preserving privacy. So, um, this is definitely something that you can approach. Uh, targeting the debate in the media, I really have to ask, did all these Sarahs and Johannes really wear their masks? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, what we did is obviously we did a very small study and we first had to generate data for our AI. Uh, so we took some public data sets that are out there. Um, we went into the city of Karlsruhe where I'm working, took some pictures of people wearing masks um, And then we used this to train the AI and the AI scored very well um, on unidentified pictures. Um, but we didn't do an analysis on a public space in any city. Uh, so I can't really tell you how the percentage of mask wearing is right now because it still needs to be implemented, obviously, into a real world setting. This is just, you know, some, some early work in, in the field. 
So I call you in a, th in a few months and then I ask you Absolutely, again. Absolutely, <laughs> please do. Yeah, but as you really um, mentioned right now, you're working in a scientist, uh, in a science field. So this is quite another approach because if you have to work in the business sector, you have competitors all over the world like Trelleborg Ceiling Solution. You're also a global uh, company. Is it really like um, the the I don't know, the guy asked, uh, is it slowing down our development in uh, terms of digitalization when we are regulated by all these data protections? So from my perspective, GDPR does not block any digital OAI innovation um, in Trellebox seeding solutions and, and for two reasons. The first one is, um, I think that... Uh, that following GDPR rules can still be a competitive advantage uh, And we in Trellebox Seeding Solutions decided to implement the GDPR guidelines globally. That means that in the end, even if, if we get some stricter rules in other uh, continents like, like Americas or Asia, um, we can be quite relaxed about it. The second part is, um, how often does this act, does GDPR actually apply to our AI use cases? And, and, and to be answer, uh, to be honest, Uh, the answer is most of the times it does not affect anything. So we deal a lot with industrial data, for example. We deal a lot with um, with internal data without any um, without any relationship to a specific person. Um, so, for example, uh, again, uh, talking about image recognition and where we use it, um, we use it, for example, for detecting seal defects and automating visual inspection. And that is data which does not have any privacy issues at all because it's it's photos of our products during during um, uh, the manufacturing process. Mm. Um, one big part of all these uh, AI things is uh, the data. That's the base of everything: data. And we need a lot of data to um, yeah to develop some AI applications. And that reminds me uh, of my study time. I always went um, everywhere and I collected every book I could get. And I had the feeling, all right. These books are there. I have the information. Unfortunately, I had no uh, time to look in those books, but I had a good feeling that all the information was there. And I think it's the same thing with data. Everyone is, every company is collecting data and data and data, but it's not useful for them because sometimes we need a more, um, We need a better data quality to use it. So here's another question from the audience. The basic requirements for AI applications or machine learning is a corresponding data quality. What strategies are used to make existing data usable? So the answer is quite simple. Good processes make good data. And uh, therefore, uh, we also do what you just described with your books in, from the library um, because we are required from legal perspective. So, for example, um, in the healthcare and medical industry, there is a lot required regarding traceability. And therefore, we store also a lot of data, um, which might never be used. But uh, in, uh, for, some, in, uh, for some cases, we might use it, need to, to look at it again. And um, that is one part of it. But then, um, and and I would say that's the majority of our digitization project, we really have a plan behind what kind of data do we want to collect and how do we want to use it, for example, for continuous improvement in manufacturing. And um, so to give you one example, 
we implemented an, a solution to monitor machine activities and trace how well our assets are used. And uh, this requires also some manual input from our operators, like downtime uh, coding, the reasons why a machine is not running, um, was there no material, was there uh, was a machine breakdown. And uh, of course, um, on the shop floor, it's not always easy to, to, to maintain data quality on a high standard, but that... In, in our tool, we implemented, for example, a backlog. So that means that the shift leaders um, can see how well they are maintaining the data, that they can feed the backward, uh, backlog even afterwards. And in some extreme um, uh, examples, we even created an alert on the shop floor when the downtime reason was not coded at all. So there you see um, you, need to, uh, you need to strategically plan data collection. And, and what definitely does not work is just um, looking at a bunch of data, which is just uh, captured without any purpose, and then trying to, to come up with some brilliant AI stuff. That's definitely not working. So how the, should the company start? I mean, there's really like my books, <laughs> they're lying there, we have a lot of data, but how can they work and start working with them? How can they bring data quality in it? It always starts with a use case. So the, the question is, of course, what am I trying to achieve? And then um, it's an iterative process. So the typical, and, and that does also not include our projects in Trellobox Ceiling Solutions, the typical setup is we have a great idea of, um, of doing a specific forecast or coming up with, with predicting anything. Um, and then we realize, okay, the data quality for this use case is not good enough. We can uh, we can do something, but it's not perfect yet. And then we have to close the loop and start again and learn from it um, what kind of data uh, do we need to capture. Same example is in the uh, in the application space. So um, it, we work uh, a lot with with customers on. Um, on, on analyzing their sensor data in the in the applications, so for example in hydraulics, and and there's the same issue. So so typically um, they might have some sensors already in place, uh, but it's not enough. And we we look at the the existing sensor data. We look at how can we correlate it um, to seal performance and and seal life. And then very often we see okay, we we can suggest you should put a sensor in this place or in this place. And, and then we uh, we will increase performance. So it's um, definitely not a one-off thing. All AI projects, it's always a continuous improvement over time. Maybe it's a good advice to hire someone or uh, work with someone who's a data curator. I, I learned that uh, that this is a job, data curation, a data curator. Maybe that could be helpful for a company. I've got another question. I think, Niklas, that's, and that's a question for you because it affects your working field pretty much. The question is, um, some people suggest that developments in automation such as RPA will pro provide huge benefits for future production processes. How is this linked to AI? Yeah, I mean, in the end, this is a definitorial uh, question. So where does automation start? Where does it stop? Where does AI start? So in the end, I think um, there are aspects of artificial intelligence that can support you in your automation endeavors, but not every automation endeavor that you pursue needs by law or um Uh, an artificial intelligence or machine learning component, right? So I think you have to look at it very use case specific and and see what is the ultimate goal that this company tries to reach and which aspects of this of their existing processes can be automated 
and in which of these process steps can AI uh, generate additional value um, or help to to automate these processes? So it's not for me, it's not either or. I mean, both are uh, linked linked uh, together. And I think it's really interesting because if you look into research, all the debates that happened uh, about automation in in the fifties, sixties, seventies. They all appear now again, this time not with the label of automation, but with artificial intelligence. Topics like how much can you trust the system? Back then it was just about automation, but now it's about an AI giving recommendations or predictions. You know, is this trustworthy or not? Do we maybe go to something called an automation bias? So do we, do we over rely on these uh, solutions then? And it's really interesting because you could you, you don't need to look into the scientific literature from the past months or years. You can just really go 50 years back and it's all there already. Mm. Um, from a perspective of a business, um, it's very interesting to use RPA. I mean, the value of it is you're, in best case, you're more efficient, you're faster. Does that make you more competitive in the same way? So speaking about automation, we have to separate between automating IT systems and automating manufacturing processes. Speaking about IT systems and the big hype around RPA, that is, and that's my personal view, it's a hot fix on a on a broken system. So we see this a lot, for example, in the insurance industry or in the banking industry that uh, 30 years old systems are now automated and uh, using Uh, using tools that that also rely on artificial intelligence, um, but that's just a hotfix. So our philosophy in in, in Trellabox Ceiling Solutions is go more on the root cause and keep our systems up to date. So just for one example, we have a big ERP implementation project ongoing where we set uh, um, set SAP S4 HANA as a as a standard. So that's one part of it. That's the the software automation, the automation in manufacturing. That's uh, something which which was there since the 70s already. Of course, the question is also always in, into, in, in automation: is it cost efficient, and uh, and and what is it worth to automate? And there, I see uh, I see a big dependency between AI and automation in general. Because first, automation creates a lot of data. If you uh, if you use robots, if you use a more automated uh, manufacturing equipment, it's typically staffed with a lot of sensors for control purposes. But that you can afterwards also use for other purposes for maybe some AI use cases. And then on the other hand, AI also allows you to automate things that would not have been possible before. And and again, this example of um, visual inspection uh, with advanced techniques in image recognition, you can today automate uh, the visual inspection of parts, which was not possible be, uh, before, because traditional methods are very dumb in a sense that you only a comparison of pixels by pixels. That means they would learn there should be a black uh, uh, a black pixel or there should be a white pixel, but they would not really be able to defect, uh, detect defects. And that's the big difference. So in the end, you can automate more um, by means of, of artificial intelligence. So it's good to hear that you're also using it. I mean, there's a, a, a picture painted in a society that the Germans are way behind all these other countries. And I have the feeling it isn't so. So all those pessimists, they rate us uh, really worse. And now we come to a point I 
like most, <laughs> it's really one of my favorite parts of the podcast because it's the solution or sci-fi part. I read out a line and I want you to um, estimate if that is kind of a solution for the future, if it's right, um, or it's more like a sci-fi idea I uh, created. So here's your line. Solution or sci-fi? The intelligent automation of the German industry will bring us back to the world elite. Yeah, I mean... That's that's a good statement. The question is... I know, it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did a good job on that. So the question is whether the German, whether it's the goal of the German industry to be as innovative as, as possible right now um, or not, or if they are rather traditional in some aspects. So, yeah, I'm not too sure. Might... I I can't really decide whether this is this is gonna definitely happen or uh, this will um, just uh, stay a statement in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good question. Do we really want to be as innovative as other countries? I I didn't know that this is quite a question. <laughs> so what do you say, Johannes? I mean, in the end, it's not about being innovative. It's about creating value with digitization or with tools. And, and, and that is also our philosophy in general, that we really look at what makes sense, what creates value for internal purposes or for our customers, and then um, focus on the right things. So it's, it's not about being as digital as possible in the end. Um, as digital as possible, maybe that is not our goal, but uh, being innovative could be a goal. And I did some research and I found a ranking of the magazine Fast Company. That's a magazine published by former authors of the Harvard Business Review. And they al always rank once a year the most innovative companies. And in my opinion, this is kind of the fastest on the market as well. So what's very, very interesting in this ranking is that Almost exclusively, um, there are startups. So there are almost no companies, no corporates ranked in there. And unfortunately, we have no German company uh, within the top 50. So how do we get our corporates, <laughs> our German corporates to speedboats? <laughs> Yeah, that may actually sound very uh, depressing if you say <laughs> it like that. Um, but then again, of course, I mean, startups have the infrastructure and the, the nature that is much more, much closer to, to the spirit of innovation. Um, so this doesn't really surprise me. I think in the end, it depends really on the strategy of the business on how they deal with innovation. So is this something that they see as a distinct process within their R&D department? Is this something that is in the very DNA of every employee? Um, for example, like the Google, uh, they have their Fridays where they can, uh, uh, that they can use for creative, innovative new ideas and work on their own products. Um, or is the spirit more that you observe the market very closely and then decide which startups um, or existing businesses you'd like to acquire and then integrate them into your um, company? And I think... Either of these three strategies has their their ups and downs, um, but maybe it's a conscious choice that no German uh, companies in there. Although I doubt that, to be honest, but <laughs> you never know. Maybe it's all strategy. I was surprised that Apple is on the um, 
39th place. That's way, way behind, I thought. But um, speaking of DNS, uh, <laughs> Johannes, your DNS is entrepreneurship. Uh, at least that's what I read on your LinkedIn profile. So how do we get those corporates um, faster and in more innovative and more like a startup? Is that even possible? It is possible to some extent. And, and there are a couple of things that companies can do. And the first one is follow an open innovation approach. And that means um, innovation does not always hap have happen in a closed shop um, where some genius comes up with a great idea and, and, and it's going to change the world. Open innovation means working with external parties that could be could be a startup for example but it could also be a research institute like the KIT or it could be a even a customer and and uh, develop uh, develop things with an open mindset that's number one number two setting up dedicated resources with it with a different back uh, background and that's uh, something I personally strongly believe in When you bring in people with a different backgrounds, and that's that's what we did in for for our digital transformation approach, people with a mechanical engineering background, with electrical engineering background, uh, with an IT, with a data science background, then um, new ideas are born. And then, lastly, um, we have a hybrid model. That means we have some uh, we have some dedicated resources to it, but then. Based on our uh, based on our approach, that we have a decentralized uh, model, especially in in manufacturing sites, you see all the small innovations, um, even on the shop floor um, in engineering new products, and and that's I think the three main reasons why we have uh, why we were quite well with with uh, digital innovation and especially AI innovation so far because we combined the three. Well, maybe we should be a little bit louder with our innovations. I mean, the, the American people, they're telling us every time when they have a new application, that's an innovation. So maybe we, we should be only a little bit braver in that case. Uh, our last question before we come to our ceiling test is, um, and I think that's one for you as well, Niklas, I mean, you're not working at Google, but maybe you can uh, estimate uh, how the development uh, goes. Uh, the question is, Google is no longer developing their VR, AR glasses with AI for the consumer sector. Why is this? And are there other organizations developing something similar? Yeah, I mean, it's in very it, it's in Google's nature um, to to fail fast and early so it's in the, if you look into the, the history of google they've always came up with new products and new services that then got discontinued um so i myself was a fan of a lot of google services that are not around anymore um so i think uh, this is just something that happens all the time if you're interested in google products or services um doesn't mean that the company's not interested in that anymore But to answer your question, um, there are definitely a, a lot of virtual reality, mixed reality and augmented reality um, sets already available at the market. They do not have right now the strong B2B focus. They're more on for the B2C level. Um, but right now you can buy, for example, an, an, an Oculus um, Quest, which is a wireless headset that you can just put it on your head and uh, start playing around with that. Um 
its application within an industrial area, um, I think that's not yet mature. Uh, I, I mean, there are a lot of examples out there, but they are all more or less research projects um, on how you can use this technology. I'm still waiting on on the killer app for an industrial <laughs> application. Although you can imagine a lot of these, but I, I've never seen anything in in in, in production yet. Um, but yeah, so the, the the headset, the hardware is out there. Um, it's just a question of the precise service or solution. So we're still waiting for the killer app. Yes. <laughs> I keep that in mind. So at the end of our podcast, we always do our ceiling test. And for the ceiling solutions, we use a material which is called uh, rubber. <laughs> And that sounds not that uh, exciting, but uh, rubber has got two exciting um, aspects. One aspect is the resilience. That's the capability of a material to return to its Uh, initial state after a uh, huge pressure. And on the other hand, rubber is very, very flexible. So here's our ceiling test. And I start with you, uh, Johannes. Where do we need to become more resilient to drive digitalization forward? And of course, where do we have to become more flexible to drive digitalization forward? So we need to be more resilient on, on scaling up the use case. And that that fits nicely to to what we talked in the in the beginning. Um, Very often we see a lot of uh, pilots or, or proof of concepts uh, happening. And then uh, you might have some first initial insights, for example, from an AI project, but then uh, it stops and it's not scaled up and it's not continued. And that is something um, what we definitely have to work on. We have to, we talked about closing the loop and improving over time. So maybe in the first um, project you learned data quality is not good enough, but then you have to revisit it after two years. Hopefully you worked on the data quality and then you can start again. So definitely more resilience on the real implementation side instead of sticking to the to the research um, part of it. And then when it comes to more flexibility, I I'm strongly convinced that we need more flexibility in how AI intelligence And human intelligence works together in the future. And we see some very silly examples in, in our day-to-day -day life already. Uh, so I would say that navigation systems are quite advanced today. And they have very uh, sophisticated algorithms in, 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 uh, in guiding, uh, guiding vehicles. Um, they rely on real-time data on a huge database. But still, a lot of humans think that they are smarter And those systems and, and would just simply ignore it and and, uh, and and keep on keep on driving the same way. And I think that is something that we will see in 10 and 20 years in, in businesses as well, that even if there are proven um, AI algorithms that uh, that have a quite a good database, they might still be ignored because humans are not used to work with them. I think you can replace human and uh, put in male and uh, man person <laughs> in there. Uh, that's got a, I've got a great uh, statistic to that. No, 90% of the male drivers in Germany think that they drive a lot better than uh, the average driver. So I'm not good at math, but that couldn't be. So, <laughs> Niklas, what about you? Yeah, so I think there's never been a better time to talk about um, resilience in organizations in general or IT systems in specific. Because right now you can observe um, which businesses uh, were more or were less resilient in the in the corona pandemic. And I think resilience has two interesting aspects um, and we almost always ignore one of them. 
So let's start with a positive one. Um, so what happens if your business suddenly scales up? Um, people go more into the supermarket. Um, people use more telecommunication software like uh, Skype, WebEx, Zoom, and so on. Now, is your organization prepared to scale up from from one point to the other in a short time? And this is also resilience. You know, how resilient are you towards a positive change in the market? And how well can you account for that? And we've seen examples where this went well in the pandemic and some others where it didn't go that well. Um, so where servers were not uh, accumulated to the to the, to the the amount of, of uh, requests that they were handling. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's I'd call it the negative side of resilience is like if, if your business, um, you know, goes down, if you have less demand, for example, in the airline industry. Um, the, the thing is, there are enough measures to prepare for, for each way. But it's very unpopular to talk about resilience in uh, times where there is no crisis happening. So to answer your question, um, we should talk about resilience not only now, but I would like, hopefully in one or two years, all of this has calmed off, but to talk about it then again, to talk about resilience in a time where it's not needed, but the preparation for this resilience needs to be needs to be, be performed. And this goes hand in hand with flexibility, I think, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, talking about flexibility, I really like Johannes' example um, of, let's say, a navigation system or a Google Maps. Um, it's it's interesting how flexible people are with their decisions and how much they let uh, their decisions be guided by an AI, for example. But I think it's also not only the users, it's never them, it's also the developers. So if we can observe that people do not trust or do not follow the decisions that were made by a system, I think then it's up to... to us, the developers, and I'm including myself here, how can we how can we build solutions that people start to trust more or that they start to be more compliant with? And I mean, there are a lot of options on how to do that, right? So the, the AI can start explaining itself better in the example that Johannes mentioned, right? So I see that there's a traffic jam on this road, so I would advise you against using that. Um, and then if, if the system is able to explain itself better, to be more transparent about its inner workings, um, then hopefully this makes people more flexible in their decisions on whether or not to comply with a decision of an AI. I have to say, I really trust and follow your estimations here. <laughs> so thanks a lot for your time and all your insights. I'm looking forward to the killer app and also to your book releases. And of course, I'm looking forward to talking to you soon. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you don't want to miss anything, just subscribe to our podcast. And of course, we are happy to receive feedback from you. So we're looking forward to your ratings and comments. And of course, we still want to answer your questions. Therefore, feel free to write us at info.podcasts at Thanks a lot and see you next time.